Welcome to Notes on Vulnerability, a podcast designed to put stories of resilience, courage and being human at the heart of the conversation. The purpose of this podcast is to speak to regular people about their experiences with vulnerability. My intention in starting this podcast is to start more of a conversation around vulnerability. It's not exactly a sexy topic and it's not an easy topic, so it's often something that we shy away from. But I genuinely feel like the more vulnerable we're able to be with one another, especially right now in the middle of a pandemic, the more connected and supported we'll feel and the more opportunities we'll be able to create for all the things that human beings want, whether that's love, joy, belonging, connection, creative expression or growth. I've heard it said that vulnerability is the ultimate measure of courage and I really believe this. I think it's got a really bad rep and I think it's about time that we turn that around. You can be vulnerable if you're a six foot three parachute regiment soldier, a city CEO, a mother, a father, an influencer, a marathon runner, a business owner, like there literally is no end to this list. What I'd really love to do with these conversations is turn away from the idea that vulnerability means weakness and actually start to look at how much more strength, emotional and physical, we actually derive from learning to get comfortable with being vulnerable. But enough of what I think. My guest for this episode is Anna Blackwell. In any survey or piece of research that has ever been done on the topic of human fears, being alone ranks up there among the big ones. It's what many of us feel is the ultimate vulnerability. There is, of course, a big difference between being alone and being lonely, but the two are often inextricably linked. So what about being alone in unfamiliar territory, perhaps a hostile environment with extreme weather? And then imagine you're a woman with the inescapable increased risk that can often pile on. This might seem like a recipe for an anxiety attack of epic proportions, but not so for my guest on this episode of Notes on Vulnerability. Anna Blackwell is an adventurer, photographer and writer with what she describes as a soft spot for the Arctic. She has gone solo in some of the world's most inhospitable environments with only a tent for shelter and a frankly epic looking sleeping bag with armholes. These adventures have meant that she's often experienced days without human contact. In 2018, she casually kayaked 4,000 kilometres across Europe. In 2019, she undertook a self-supported road trip of thousands of miles through South Africa, Botswana and Mozambique. There have also been solo expeditions to the Arctic Circle, a thousand mile solo walk across France and Spain, a master's in environmental and human health, a solo move to Cornwall, and of course, Bilbo the Adventure Pooch, the latest addition to Anna's household. This woman does not mess around. From hornet stings to a mountain rescue, there have been challenges too, but resilience is another quality that Anna has by the bucket load. And I'd imagine that as soon as these COVID restrictions lift, we won't see her for dust. So Anna, welcome. Hello, thank you so much for having me. You're very welcome. I really want to ask you about Bilbo and that sleeping bag, obviously, but let's start with the cheerful topic of fear. Fear is one of the main reasons we often avoid situations that make us feel vulnerable. How did you get so fearless or have you simply become an expert at handling it? It's interesting. I think my, I think probably my relationship with fear has changed. So I didn't used to be as fearless as I am because I mean, it may sound a bit arrogant to say it, but on the whole, I am pretty fearless. It takes a lot to really make me feel sort of scared and uncomfortable. Um, but I definitely never used to be like that. But I've been going off on these sorts of these adventures and solo travels for, I think it's six or seven years now, maybe eight years. Um, 
And through those adventures, I have been in so many situations where I've been challenged and I've been out of my comfort zone and I have made it through. And having overcome those situations, I've learned that I'm much more capable than I thought I was. And I've realized that actually I'm really resilient. So I know that if I go into a situation that maybe I can't handle, actually I've probably got the skills somewhere and I can bounce back from that situation. Um, so that means that, you know, I can put myself into tough situations um, and actually feel like I can get through. So it does take a lot for me to feel really scared. So when you do feel scared, what do you actually do with that fear? What, what goes on inside? So as I said, it does take a lot for me to really feel, feel fear and feel scared. And I think the, the only time I can really think of where I have felt that to any sort of intensity was back in October, so only a couple of months ago. And I'm sure we will talk about that situation. Um, but I think the reason why it takes a lot for me to feel scared is that I'm quite a practical and rational person. So when I'm in that situation where I you know something's going wrong or I'm alone and I don't quite know what to do, rather than getting caught up in the emotion of the situation and rather than letting that spiral out of control, um, I'm, I'm quite rational and practical. So I'll immediately kick into thinking, okay, well, how do I handle the situation? How do I get out of it? What is the first step that I need to take? Um, and because I'm so focused on handling the situation, I don't let myself become scared or kind of, I don't engage with, with the emotion of the situation. It does sometimes catch up with me afterwards. And I will occasionally, you know, when I've made it through and I've kind of, I don't know, got a little bit of time between me and whatever had just happened, I will ha sort of have a moment where I'll be like, bloody hell, that was, uh, <laughs> that was quite intense. I could easily have gone the other way but you know I've made it through um so I guess I kind of I feel the aftermath of fear more than the actual moment of fear itself if that makes sense yeah that does so you've mentioned resilience there when have you had to be at your most resilient and what does resilience mean to you so I'm gonna answer that uh with the second part first resilience to me means the ability to cope with challenging situations uh, and not just survive them, but actually thrive through them. So there's this kind of idea that something positive comes out of it. So it's not just a matter of being able to get through the shit times, but it's actually being able to get through it and then learn something or grow in some way that actually means that that situation kind of is a positive when you reflect back on it. I think the time where I've had to be the most resilient is probably back in October. Um, I was up in Arctic Sweden by myself, which is a fairly normal thing for me. Um, I was doing a eight day trek and it was supposed to be very, uh, very low key, quite an easy one, no pressure about covering a certain amount of distance or anything. Mm -hmm. um, it was just a short little trip that I was squeezing in while I could. Um, and the first six days of it were absolutely incredible. I would say one of the best, if not the best six days of adventure that I've ever had. Uh, and then on the sort of towards the end of day six and into day seven, it started snowing pretty heavily. And I went from being in sort of, I'd say, shoelace to ankle depth snow um, through to it being up to my waist in about 24 hours. Wow. Which is a lot of snow um, and a lot, to, a lot to deal with, actually. So I, with that amount of snow, I couldn't make the progress that I needed in order to get back to the village before I ran out of food. 
So I had enough food for another, I think it was two days or something, or three days, had a bit of contingency food with me. But because there was so much snow, it would have taken me more like five or six days to get back. So I had this really fairly horrendous 18 hours, I think it was, um, where I started to realise that I wouldn't be able to get out of this, that situation unaided. Um, from realising that, I then had to try and work out how to handle it and what to do, had to look at my different options. And I, I realised that actually the only thing I really could do was to activate the SOS alert on my GPS. Um, and that's quite a big deal because if you, if you activate it and you don't have sort of circumstances that they deem actually an emergency, then you get a hefty fine that I definitely could not afford to pay. And I think there was also, it wasn't ego, but there was definitely, I have this thing where I, I don't like to sort of cause a scene or be that annoying person that's constantly, you know, kicking up a bit of a fuss. I kind of like to, like to be quite easy. Um, and activating your SOS and needing to get helicoptered out is definitely not being easy. <laughs> um, so I had, yeah, I had a couple of hours. I actually ended up sleeping on it um, because I didn't want to rush into this decision, um, which looking back, it was so ridiculous that I gave myself such a hard time because um, it was absolutely the right thing to do. Um, but yeah, so I, I ended up sleeping on it and uh, the next morning, activated my SOS and um, was rescued by a, by a helicopter. Um, but the process of sort of between realising that I would need help and actually activating that SOS, taking that step to be rescued, was really, really stressful and by far the most isolated I've ever felt and the most vulnerable. Um, I couldn't message anyone, I couldn't phone anyone to ask them how I should handle it, I couldn't get a second opinion. Um, I couldn't even phone someone to be like, actually, is there another option? I had to fully make that myself. So being in that sort of situation completely by myself in the Arctic wilderness, that was, yeah, the, the toughest thing that I've ever, ever had to do. Um, and I really had to call on every sort of skill and strength I had in order to not just crawl into my tent and burst into tears and just think oh my god it's all over um I had to stay very calm and rational and not freak out um but I made it through and you know I now know what happens when you activate your SOS when you're in that sort of situation I know how it works um and it wasn't a life or death situation as well so you know it could have been a hell of a lot worse and I got a cool helicopter ride out of it and I got to see the Northern Lights that night so you know, <laughs> silver linings I feel like your comfort zone must be just huge after an experience like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there are there are a few things that, like, if I thought about different situations, I, like, I really struggle to think of something where actually, like, yeah, that is way out of my comfort zone because I know that I could handle that completely by myself with no one around. So actually, that's quite a yeah intense and unique situation. Um, most of the situations I've been in, which have been challenging, at the end of the day, there have been people there who have just stepped in right when we needed them. You know, the kayaking trip that I did with my friend Kate a couple of years ago, we had so many things going wrong on that trip. Like, I swear, every single day for a couple of weeks of it, something broke, like a kayak would break, or one of us would get ill, or the weather would be horrendous. 
just so many things. Um, and it was a five month trip. So, you know, there's a long time for a lot of stuff to go wrong and pretty much everything did. Um, but whenever we were in those situations being like, um, okay, what do we do now? Someone would turn up and, and just have the answer or at least help us to figure out the answer. So yeah, sort of facing, facing such a tough situation being completely on my own. Yeah. That made it a lot, a lot more challenging. So do you think that, I was going to ask you about, you know, tell me about your hairiest moments. And I think you just have. <laughs> Are there any others that, that you've had which have been similar? Um, the only other really hairy moments, I mean, I've, I'm the kind of person that I, I forget how bad situations were. Um, I far too quickly forget, yeah, how gnarly things got. So I look back and I'm like, oh yeah, that was all right. And then... Uh, this particularly the kayaking trip I look back and I think oh you know it wasn't that bad and then Kate my kayaking partner would be like um do you think you're remembering it correctly <laughs> uh, so you know there was a time where I had uh left Kate we had we were in a two-person kayak a double kayak and I had left her in the kayak um on a canal and she was sort of holding onto the side of the canal while I ran along the towpath to try and find somewhere to camp and this was in uh northern France I think or Belgium and in the sort of couple of minutes that I had run off to see whether there was anywhere we could pitch our tent, um, three massive shipping barges came along the canal, all overtaking each other. So this is quite a big canal, not, not the pretty little quaint ones that we get in England. These are like industrial canals in Northern Europe. Um, but what happens when boats, ships, basically, <laughs> these big, uh, this big goes past is the water level drops massively. And then you get a huge wash come off the back of them that is like being in the sea on a really rough day. So what happened when these boats went past is the water level dropped so much that Kate could barely hold on to the bank because the kayak dropped so low there was nothing she could hold on to. So she literally had it by like her fingertips. And then the wash came and her and our kayak, Benji, Benji and kayak, got absolutely smashed against the side. Um, And I turned around just as these barges were coming along so all I saw was barges and I couldn't even see Kate and in my mind I was like well she's died <laughs> like, how do I tell her mother like oh what on earth do I do now and I was like running down the bank literally screaming her name thinking oh, I just killed her like I'm the one that left her in the bloody boat and I mean the end of the story she was totally fine very very shaken up and you know there were a couple of chunks taken out of the nose of the kayak but yeah so that was a very very hairy moment granted I wasn't the one in the kayak, um, <laughs> maybe not my hair recently, um, but there were, yeah, there were other times in sort of 25 foot deep locks um, and things like that where it could have got very, very sketchy very quickly, but we just, I don't know, we just tried to stay calm in those situations and just let them unfold a little bit. I think, I mean, <laughs> One, one of the reasons why some situations get so bad is that something happens and you react too quickly and you, by reacting so quickly, you actually make that situation like 10 times worse and it just escalates. Whereas actually, if you just pause, if you just think, okay, let's just give it a second to see what happens next. So often these situations will right themselves or like the answer will become apparent. Um, so we got quite good at just taking a moment to pause and be like, hang on, is it as bad as we think it is? Often it was, <laughs> we just got very, very creative um, and got very used to approaching people to be like, excuse me, can you help us? And everyone always said yes. 
So when you when you stop and pause, did you have a cup of tea? Because that would be such a British thing to do. <laughs> we wouldn't have a cup of tea, but we would always have a snack. Because that <laughs> is another thing. So often situations will appear 10 times worse, 100 times worse if you're hungry and tired. Um, so if we were ever like, oh, God, it's all going to shit, then we'd be like, Okay, let's just have a little snack and then see if we still think it's as bad as it is and so often it wouldn't be quite as bad and it was just that actually our blood sugar level was down and we weren't thinking rationally I feel like that's actually quite a good mantra for life let's just stop and have a snack I use it multiple times a day and what's your optimum <laughs> snack Ooh, at the moment cinnamon buns that is quite a niche snack though not something that you can get easily I have just baked a delicious batch of cinnamon buns um probably I'd say trail mix is my absolute favorite salted peanuts and raisins I could just oh man I have to really ration myself um that's my go-to good choice you've described yourself as an adventurer is that just chasing hairy moments what is an adventurer what does adventure mean to you so adventure to me means pushing myself sort of finding experiences that are outside my comfort zone or in a sort of unknown to me um and that doesn't necessarily that doesn't have to be like far-flung remote places or really really long trips from like so back 2019 I was tracking across Arctic and uh, northern Scandinavia um and before I was even halfway through that trip people were asking me, oh, what's your next adventure going to be then? Um, and my answer was, well, actually, I'm going back and I'm starting a master's. And that, for me, is my next adventure, doing a master's for a year. Because actually, that presented so many more unfamiliar situations and unknowns than a lot of the adventures that I now do. Because I was going back into an academic setting, I was having to um, like study again and do assessments and all those sorts of things that actually I was quite unfamiliar with. So I've, I think adventure is more of a mindset than anything. Um, it, yeah. So it doesn't just have to be these huge, exciting um, trips where you're chasing the hairy moments and trying to live an exciting story. It's, it's much more, I don't know, it can be much more low-key than that. But you obviously you do go to these quite incredible landscapes. So I was going to ask you what's the appeal of an inhospitable landscape like the Arctic Circle, but I'm wondering whether you even see it as inhospitable. Yes, I actually, I don't see it as inhospitable. Um, I think because it's somewhere that I, I mean, the appeal of it to me, of, of the sort of the Arctic, um, Arctic Scandinavia, where I go a lot, the appeal is the remoteness and the kind of the wilderness and the barrenness and being removed from civilization and all of the distractions of that sort of everyday life. Like I put my phone on airplane mode, so even if I could get signal, I don't get any notifications coming through. I don't even take headphones with me because I want to fully immerse myself in that environment. And it's up there, I absolutely feel like the best version of myself and I think once you remove all of those distractions of normal everyday life you just get such a, a rich experience so I've learned like so much about myself and I've come to really like myself without sounding horrendously arrogant um I've just really come to terms with who I am through through being in these environments where it's just you and 
nature, basically. So this is kind of not extreme aloneness, but it, it is aloneness. And I, I kind of mentioned that in the introduction. And I know that when I was researching this, I saw that you described it as a blessing and a curse. And there's one journal entry that you recently put on your Instagram from October last year um, when you said, I didn't see anyone all day, which made me very happy. <laughs> <laughs> so what what is it about being alone? You've kind of covered it a bit there, but what do you love about it and what do you find difficult? Yeah, so what, I, what I've just described is what I love about it. Um, I find being alone, and when I say it, so I don't have the same sort of experience if I'm in sort of more built-up areas. Um, so being alone in those environments, um, in the remote environments, I feel like my experience of pretty much everything is like massively intensified. Um, so like my emotions are so much more intense than normal. Um, and this is where it's a blessing and a curse because if I am, um, I just, okay. So for example, I remember when I was, um, in Arctic Sweden back in 2016, I think it was, I just so distinctly remember this afternoon where I was sort of heading up to a mountain pass and it was a beautifully blue day, but so windy. And there was this really, really brutal freezing cold wind that had literally like my face was frozen and this kind of like half smile, half grimace. But the views around me were just sensational. And I remember feeling just so, like, this overwhelming sense of joy and contentment. And, like, I just knew that that was exactly where I was meant to be. And I was doing exactly what I was meant to be doing at that time. And, like, I literally cried because I was like, oh, my God, this is just amazing. Um, so that's where the, the positive feelings are just like, oh, my God, through the reef just I, I haven't experienced that in sort of normal life but at the same time then if I'm feeling unmotivated or low um or I'm just you know in a bit of a funk for whatever reason that is then so much worse um and it literally feels like the world is ending and you don't have anyone around you to help pick you up or to motivate you and because my I like to keep my phone on airplane mode so I I remove the option of like phoning a friend or phoning one of my parents to be like, oh, I'm in a bad mood, distract me, which is what I do a lot in <laughs> normal life. Um, so you, yeah, see, those, those low moments are also much, much, um, much deeper and more intense. Um, so I've got quite good at sort of a, embracing them at times um, and not necessarily fighting it because sometimes you just got to go with the flow of that low mood. Um, but I have got quite good at myself up out of it as well do you have one thing that you sort of say to yourself I do when I'm on adventures so if I'm having like a really rubbish time the thing I don't know whether this I do I don't know whether it really helps I feel like it does but I tell myself that I've chosen to be in that situation so if I like if I do my legs are aching or my rucksack feels really heavy or I'm hungry but I'm on rations so I, I can't eat all my food because then I'll run out of food and have like four days of not eating so whatever whatever's going on I'll be like oh my god mate look you put yourself in the situation so just like make the best of it you've chosen to be here so bloody enjoy it <laughs> but that I don't know whether that really translates through to rubbish moments in normal life because actually you probably <laughs> haven't chosen to be in those rubbish situations quite as much um but I think I do still have a an attitude of trying to get the best out of a situation whatever it is um, which is 
definitely something I've got for my adventures because when you've got a week or 10 days of torrential rain and absolutely zero visibility, you learn to just find joy and positivity in whatever you can, whether that is your tiny little handful of salted peanuts and raisins or, I don't know, a bit of frost in the morning. Yeah, I've got quite a good at those silver linings. So, I mean, preparation, you've kind of mentioned rations there. Like, preparation must be key. It, what it is for anything you do outdoors, whether it's on land or in the sea or up a mountain. So how do you prepare physically, emotionally for going on an adventure? Physically, I definitely should prepare more than I tend to. Um, because the trips that I do tend to be quite long, sort of anywhere between eight weeks and five months, I know that my body will adjust in the first week or 10 days. So I kind of, a lot of the time, particularly well, the trek that I did in 2019 was about three months. And I knew that those first 10 days were going to be really brutal because my rucksack was going to be the heaviest it would be for the whole trip. Um, And I was going to be the least fit out of the whole trip as well. So going into it, I just, I had this attitude of, I'll just go as slow as I need to. I'll take as many breaks as I need to. It's going to be grim at times, but I'll get through it. Um, So that's the kind of, oh, I guess that's actually, that's kind of the emotional preparation as well, is just readying myself for those moments where actually I really, really hate it. And there are so many moments like that as well. Like it's so easy to look at these adventures or for me to look back on these adventures and to think, oh, that's so cool. It's so beautiful there. It's so exciting. These epic places you get to camp. But then there's all these other sides of it, like the first 10 days of that trip. There were more mosquitoes than I have ever experienced in my life. And I'm part Swedish. I had pretty much every summer growing up in Sweden, often in a forest on the side of a lake where there are so many, um, so many mosquitoes. But on that trip in 2019, mosquitoes literally brought me to tears because (laughs) I just, there were so many. And they were like biting through multiple layers of fabric as well. Um, I had like all my layers on, even though it was about, I don't know, 18, 20 degrees. And I was just wearing everything to try and stop them biting and had like so much insect repellent on. That was a really, really bad time, actually. I remember that afternoon. Um, so yeah, so the, the emotional preparation is basically telling myself that those situations are going to arise, but I just will do whatever needs to be done to get through it. And I inevitably will get through it because I have no other option. And that's that's about the extent of the physical and mental preparation actually so there's no sort of packing lists or um oh yeah no. there's a lot of logistical okay. preparation a lot i'm a i flipping love a spreadsheet so <laughs> i have spreadsheets of like all of my equipment um which will list like the different the three different pairs of gloves i will take it will have each one itemized um and uh, particularly food actually is the most important thing to make sure that I've, I've sorted out. So that trip in 2019, um, it was a thousand kilometers long and I knew I had, I think, um, seven or eight, uh, different, uh, food drop-off points. So I had shipped ahead food packages that I was then collecting from sort of mountain stations or village shops or from like a petrol station in the middle of nowhere. Um, So preparing those, I had to know exactly what distance I was doing between food supplies, um, what the train was like, how long that would probably take me. And then I would have to make sure that I had enough food in that supply box for that um, that next section. Uh, So that was a lot of 
a lot of preparation. I absolutely love it. I find those those parts of it almost as fun as the actual adventure itself. <laughs> so do you think food, you've meant obviously food is obviously very important and I am obsessed with your sleeping bag. <laughs> Which for anyone listening to this who hasn't seen it, if you go to Anna's Instagram, it's basically a huge orange sleeping bag that covers everything and has armholes. So you can make tea without getting out of your sleeping bag. <laughs> is it that is your second most, most phenomenal thing? Is that the second most important thing? <laughs> so do you know what? That sleeping bag actually is not one that I take on most of my most of my adventures because it is it's a polarated one. So it's um, it's kind of ideal temperature is like minus 25. So that only comes on the really extreme winter trips that I do. Um, but my sleeping setup in general is really important to me. Um, food is the most important thing, but then having somewhere that I um, feel safe to sleep in is like so important. Sleep in general, like not just on adventures, but in general, sleep is one of the most important things to me, as it should be for everyone. Um, so having having a really comfy, warm place to sleep and a tent that I fully trust in like, mountain storms is key. And the, the the kit that I have now, I've absolutely nailed my setup. So I trust in in anything. Have you experienced any specific challenges traveling alone as a woman, or any specific advantages? Really interesting that you followed that up. Actually, with advantages. So so often people assume that traveling as a woman, either solo or, you know, as two young women or two women, is much riskier. Um, but I, I have completely encountered the opposite. And particularly with the kayaking trip. So the trips I do up in the Arctic, I don't really think it makes a difference whether you're a man or a woman at all, because there's, there aren't really any people up there who pose a threat. Um, and generally speaking, the biggest threat is going to be people on, on adventures. Um, unless we're someone where there are bears by treasure boy days. Um, so the trip where actually being a girl potentially was going to pose the biggest threat um, or be the, the kind of a, a risk was the kayaking trip with Kate, where we kayaked across Europe. And quite a lot of people, before we went on that trip, quite a lot of people warned us um, or had their reservations about us being two young women going off and kayaking and we were camping pretty much every night while camping um, and people thought that we were just taking a massive unnecessary risk by doing that and they thought that we'd be exposed and vulnerable and that our kayak would be stolen and our equipment would be stolen would be attacked whatever um, none of that happened uh, we just met so many incredible and generous and kind people along the way and I think the fact that we were two young women actually was an advantage because I think people wanted to help us and protect us a lot more than if we'd been two men. And actually, I, I have a friend who paddleboarded a very similar route um, or part of the route that we did. And <laughs> when he heard how much help and hospitality we we'd had received, he was shocked and really horrified actually because when he did that trip, he just got turned away from everywhere. So. He, Kate and I were able to um, camp outside a lot of yacht clubs and sailing clubs and, you know, the president would come down and be like, oh, welcome, like, help yourself to drink in the bar or, like, let us sleep on their yacht or, you know, we were invited onto people's boats for drinks and dinners and showers. Um, people would stop us and give us snacks. So 
we we just saw so much kindness and generosity um whereas when my friend andy went and did this paddleboarding trip like he received none of that um so i think actually regardless of your gender you need to be kind of savvy and be aware of the situations that you're putting yourself into and kind of be pretty streetwise like we were careful not to just flash our kit around all the time we were respectful to the communities that we we're passing through we tried to keep a pretty low profile we would always you know get a little bit out of town before trying to find somewhere to camp um but then yeah we <laughs> we've just met so many epic people um so i think it definitely was an advantage to us on that trip being um being women that's very heartwarming to hear actually yeah i think actually that was the best the best thing about that trip was was the people that we met along the way and even the people who had like so little we met some Serbian fishermen. Um, we were having a really, really bad day. We were behind schedule and there was like this gale force wind. So we were like desperately paddling. Um, we were on the Danube at the time and it was a really wide section of it. Um, so we were like paddling away, giving it our all and we were going, like pretty sure people were walking faster than we were kayaking. And we were just exhausting ourselves. And these three Serbian fishermen were just kind of watching us, probably thinking, what the hell are they doing? Um, and eventually they kind of like beckoned us over and we were usually like, oh yeah, we're coming, we're coming. Um, and they helped us out of our kayak and helped us to like tie it up and stuff. And we didn't really have a mutual language other than charades and laughing. Um, but we ended up joining them for first for coffee. They made us fantastic coffee. Um, and it was so sweet because we were both a little bit cold because it was really windy. We were there in like little strappy tops, um, sports tops. And they kind of gave us a jumper or a coat each. And then they were cooking this huge feast of a breakfast and they invited us to join them. So we ended up having this massive breakfast of like bacon and eggs and there were fresh tomatoes and bread, all of this amazing food, accompanied by reikia, which is um, like a homebrew spirit. It's like 60 or 80%, like so, so strong. Oh, um, so <laughs> we ended up like drinking some reikia with them as well because it just seemed like a good thing to do. And had such a fantastic morning with them. Morning, yeah, it was like half nine. Um, and we all got a little a little bit merry, a bit tipsy. But it was so, so, so much fun. So fantastic to just share a meal with these people. Like if you're traveling in a more conventional way, or if you're driving somewhere, or if you're on a train or you're flying into a country, I think you miss those, those little moments of actually engaging with people in those places. So that was one of the best things about this kayaking trip is that we absolutely got to meet all of those people along the way. And we got to um, share meals with them or share a drink with them uh, or even just, you know, have a chat on the side of the river. And that was so special and so rewarding. So you're now based in Cornwall, which I'm very envious of, but obviously that's not where you've always been. What was it like moving down there on your own? I'd imagine it's kind of a different type of vulnerability. Yeah, completely. Um, so I moved down here to do a master's. So I think moving down with a purpose definitely helped. But for the first probably five months that I was living here, I, I definitely found it hard to find a community um, or to, to sort of make any really good friends. I made what I would call sort of surface friends, like people who I would pop over and have a cup of tea with um, or go for a swim or go out paddleboarding with. But um I didn't really make any deep friendships and I, I like that kind of rich connection with, with people um but I think the reason why I struggled was actually I hadn't 
focused, I wasn't really focusing my time or my energy on finding those people around me. So I was away quite a lot or I was constantly sort of planning where I was going to go and I was just, yeah. Um, so I did get quite lonely um, in those first five months. Um, it didn't help that the weather was just horrendous and it rained every single day. I think it was between October and March or October and February, it rained every day apart from one day, which definitely did not help. Um, but I realised I realised that I wasn't making an effort to build that sort of network around me. Um, so I ended up actually moving to a slightly different part of Cornwall about a year ago and straight away just threw myself into talking to anyone that I could. Actually, <laughs> I would sit outside the flat that I was living in um, at the time, sit in the sun and just strike up conversation with anyone, preferably if they had a dog. Um, and <laughs> that, um, that straight away, I just built so many friendships um, by doing that. And I, I guess that you kind of are being vulnerable by putting yourself out there, but it's one of those things that actually doesn't make me feel too vulnerable because I'm used to being in situations where I have to talk to people, I have to strike up conversations, I have to ask directions. So it, that was that was relatively comfortable um, when I kind of decided that I was going to make the effort. But definitely during those five months, um, I felt much more lonely and isolated than I do even when I'm in the middle of nowhere in the Arctic. That's interesting. So it's more, it was more challenging to deal with that in Cornwall than being on your own in the middle of a snow covered. Yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. I think I, I feel, I feel more. I mean, I, I don't generally feel that lonely in in most situations. But I definitely, if we're going to go with the word lonely, I feel lonelier in urban areas than I do in remote areas if I'm by myself because obviously. When you're by yourself in a remote area, there aren't people around. Whereas when you're in a city, there are loads of people around. You see, you know, couples or people with all their mates hanging out, and and that kind of acts as a reminder that actually you don't have those people around you. Um, so I think having that sort of reminder, like I'd be, I'd go for a walk or a run or something, and just see all these groups of people on the beach, and I'm like, why don't I have that? Why don't I have friends down here? And then I'd have to be like, well, Anna, you haven't really tried that much to make friends. So these things don't just happen. Like you have to, you have to make the effort. You have to put yourself out there. Um, so yeah, that <laughs> that gave me a bit of a kick up the bum when I actually clocked that it was my fault. <laughs> I really want your internal voice. I really like it. It's very no nonsense. Like, yeah, uh, yeah but I do, <laughs> I do give myself. I think I, I do occasionally put quite a lot of pressure on myself because I'll, I think I set the bar quite high for myself which is actually it's always worked out because I've achieved pretty much everything that I've decided I want to have a go at I've kind of got to I've, I've accomplished it to the standard that I was hoping um but there are definitely times along the way I'm like god why why do I give myself like, such a hard time about getting this done <laughs> so just a bit more self-compassion then yeah yeah I could, yeah I've, I think I've actually gained a lot of that in the last year. Mm. I've definitely learned to just ease ease up a little bit. I haven't had a choice. Is that um. sort of because of lockdown? Yeah. 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 And um, how's Hinge in Cornwall? So, do you know what? I actually, um, 
I can't use Hinge because my phone won't let me download it. It says that I'm under 18, no matter what I do. <laughs> Tinder, however, I, without wanting to be disrespectful, I think it's pretty dire. <laughs> um, I have not had great luck. Again, I am quite picky, so I don't help myself. Um, but I have had a couple of, I had a couple of dates uh, last summer and um, they were perfectly enjoyable, lovely young men. Um, and then they both ghosted me. Uh, which I was not particularly impressed by. Um, you know, I can take it. If someone doesn't like me, that's totally fine. As I said earlier, like I'm pretty happy with who I am, but I also recognise I'm not necessarily everyone's cup of tea. Um, but I'm pretty tough, so if someone's not interested, I can absolutely take it if they just, you know, if they say, you yeah, had a nice time, but I actually don't think there's that sort of chemistry or I don't want to pursue this, I can handle that. I get so frustrated then people just cut off communication um and with both of these guys like they were so at the end of the day they were both so keen and they were both like oh yeah let's um let's do this again like when you're next free um and then i would message them um or whatever and, and then there's just there'd be silence and that i just can't deal with that lack of closure just i can't oh man it drives me crazy did you ever follow up and be like look, you know, this is absolutely fine if you don't want to take it forward, but you do have to say that. I'm not psychic. <laughs> so one of them, I didn't pull the following up because, like, I'd had a, it had been a nice date and stuff, but I, uh, I didn't feel like actually it was worth it. It wasn't worth following up and pursuing that because actually I wasn't interested. Um, so, but the other guy, it was a little bit more awkward because he was working at the same, um, on the same site as I was. So I would see him regularly and a couple of the other guys that he worked with knew that knew that we'd been out and that something had happened. It just became like this weird thing. And like, they'll be like, oh, he's avoiding her or she's avoiding him or she's pissed off. And I'm like, I'm not at all. Like, I really, I don't care that much, but it just, they all blew it so out of proportion, which was so strange because like, I, like nothing has happened. Oh, people are strange. <laughs> it is baffling. It, it felt like I was back at school or something. It was like proper, like common room sort of stuff going on. And the, this guy was in his thirties, and these other guys were older than that as well. Yeah, mind boggling. <laughs> I have to say, unfortunately, I don't think that age is necessarily an indicator of logical decision making. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> um, okay, so finally, let's talk about Bilbo. He's your lovely Collie Kelpie cross pup. Uh, is that right? It is, yeah. So obviously he's gorgeous and outrageously photogenic, but I've also really enjoyed how you've been documenting the challenges of raising him too. I got my dog nearly a decade ago and it was a huge shock how hard the first year was. I thought I may as well have just had a baby. <laughs> um, so how are you coping now and what tips do you have for other people? Oh, my first tip would be make sure you're ready to get a dog. I, like so many people are getting dogs during lockdown in the last year and they're thinking, oh, I'm working from home all the time. Perfect. Right time to get a dog. Yeah, they're really full on. So actually the fact that you're working from home all the time, maybe not the best thing because you're always with that puppy. And that is one of the hardest things with Bilbo. So I've been furloughed and I live somewhere quite remote and I live by myself. So I am with that puppy 24 seven, um, which is lovely because he's adorable and he can be very cuddly and he's very cute when he's asleep. Um, but a lot of the time he is 
just so full on like he's got so much energy and he's really really intelligent um which i can use my advantage because i can trade him really quickly and all that sort of stuff but it does mean that he needs a lot of um entertainment and engagement and mental stimulation and my whole life at the moment has become mentally tiring my puppy out because i can't just like take him on a walk for two hours and physically tire him out because he's too young he's only allowed 20 minutes at a time because he's just over four months so yeah trying to um trying to remind myself that he is still a baby um has been important because there was a period where i was like oh my god have i just got the demon puppy like have i got the bad <laughs> egg have i got the bad seed in the litter um <laughs> And I'm like, no, he's just a three-month-old puppy. Like, of course, he wants to cheer everything. He wants to bite everything. He wants to jump up. He wants to play. Um, he's a, you know, he's a, a Kelpie is a cattle dog. So he, and a Collie as well. He wants to just herd everything. So that's why he's, like, nipping my feet. He also, for a while, like, he just wouldn't settle anywhere. So, well, he wouldn't settle anywhere other than his crate. And I just, I remember I was on Instagram, like other people had puppies and they were posting all these photos and videos of their puppies just like passed out in like hilarious positions or like sleeping on their lap or, you know, in the corner of the kitchen or like under a counter or on the sofa, but just puppies sleeping everywhere. And I just remember looking down at Bilbo as he was like just constantly terrorizing me thinking, why don't you just sleep everywhere? And he, like, he's the kind of dog that he generally will only sleep when I put him in his crate for designated, like, allocated sleep time. Otherwise, unless he's, like, completely wiped out and he literally can't stand on his feet for another two minutes, um, he just, he he wakes up constantly. He's just, he always wants to know what's going on, so he doesn't just chill. <laughs> That's been <laughs> very intense. Yeah, he, as, he is gorgeous. Not a lot. <laughs> is he going to get his own GoPro for future expeditions? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, he's going to be properly kitted out, you know, when he when he's old enough. So he's going to be probably two years onwards. Um, he's going to have like a little backpack. You can get sort of harnesses that have um, different um, packs on the side. So he'll carry some of his stuff. They're allowed to carry up to 25% of their body weight. Um, so I'm going to make sure he's like really fit and strong and he can, like he's used to having a harness on. And I'll be making sure that he has a coat on occasionally. So when we go up to the Arctic in the winter, I can put a coat on if he's not too freaked out by that. He'll have like little snow boots if he needs them. Yeah, a little GoPro mountain on the back. Get the pup eye view. <laughs> this is exciting. I can't wait to see this. I know, I'm so excited as well. <laughs> this, like, this is one of the extra frustrations. Like, I'm, for years, I've been so focused on having a dog. And I think a little part of me forgot that actually... The puppy phase is a really really long long phase and you can't just go off like I'm really used to being able to go out walking for a day or at least go out walking for four or five hours at a time um and I can't do that at the moment because I can't take Bilbo I mean I tried putting him in the rucksack and <laughs> he was not keen on that um so I gave up it wasn't worth it at all so having to make those sorts of adjustments has has been um yeah challenging at times but luckily I've got quite a few friends who love dogs um, and are really good with dogs who have me take them for a day at a time so that I can just have my space and that's been oh, a relief necessary. <laughs> <laughs> so where are you going to go first as soon as these restrictions lift? Oh well I'm meant to be going up to Arctic Finland in March which oh who knows if that's going to happen um but I mean, up to the Arctic, 
basically is always the answer. Um, I am hoping to go up um, to go backcountry skiing and camping with a couple of other girls who are wilderness guides up there, um, which would be absolutely awesome to do an all-girls trip. If that doesn't happen, then I will probably still be going up to the Arctic <laughs> um, at some point, potentially for a slightly longer period, renting a cabin and taking Bilbo. But no, no big trips for a while because of young Mr Baggins. I don't want to leave him at home for a couple of months. I could leave him with, with my parents or with a friend, but actually I don't want to. Uh, so I've got to wait until he's old enough to come with me. And in the meantime, just do a couple of shorter trips to keep myself ticking along. At the end of these podcasts, I usually ask people to provide one note on vulnerability. Um, so that's basically one piece of advice whatever you think is most important where vulnerability is concerned? My advice would be to lean into vulnerability and accept that there is risk involved and that you may be hurt or there may be a negative outcome, but actually the chances are there'll be some incredible opportunity um, or there'll be more personal growth and more experiences than you actually considered when you first thought of that situation. Um, so just be open to those outcomes as well. Don't, don't focus so much on what could go wrong. That's a good one. Well, thank you so much for that. And congratulations to Bilbo for not distra- disturbing us. <laughs> I know, he's been really quiet. You have an amazing <laughs> dog. <laughs> thank yeah, you so much, you. Anna. That's been such a lovely chat. Uh, that was so much fun. I loved it.